you know, I think that in many ways the recruiting business has not changed at all. Um, and in some ways the recruiting business has changed completely. And the, the main change, if you just want it in a 30 year chunk of time, um, is the velocity and ease of which you can get information. In a fast moving digital world, what does it mean to be a sustainable business? And how does identity empower your business? Join me as I share a glimpse of our life at Spokio. Explore the minds of data industry leaders and dive deeper into relevant topics in the digital world. Welcome to another episode of Tang Talk. So today uh, we are very honored to have the CEO of JobScore, uh, Dan, uh, on our show. And uh, Spokio has been a loyal customer of JobScore for years, and uh, we love the tool. Uh, and JobScore, by the way, is a applica uh, applicant tracking system, and uh, uh, it's helping us to better understand who our candidates are and actually track the can candidate workflow. So the, you know, Dan has been in this industry, the recruiting industry for almost 30 years. So he has quite a bit of experiences uh, in this industry. And uh, we're very, very honored and pleased to have Dan on our show to kind of talk about the current state of the job market. So Dan, welcome. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, and thanks for being a customer for so long. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we love to have opportunities to, uh, to help companies recruit better and to help people, you know, uh, get where they want to go in their career. Yeah. So Dan, uh, if you don't mind, can you kind of uh, uh, go through a little bit about your background and how do you get into uh, the recruiting industry and also how do you start uh, job score? Sure. Uh, well, uh, in my life story. Uh, sure. So um, I'm originally American, but I'm half Brazilian. Um, I went to college back east and uh, I actually found my job through the New York Times because the Internet was not widely used in 1995. Um, I responded to an ad. Uh, I got a job at a recruiting agency. Um, it was a great opportunity uh, where the, basically through mentorship, um, ironically, another guy named Dan taught me how to be a recruiter. Um, and then um, I opened a new office in Silicon Valley for that New York-based recruiting firm, then uh, briefly ran what's called RPO now, which is basically running recruiting for multiple companies at the same time. Uh, and then in the dot bomb, um, basically I had to shut that company down uh, had an idea for what's now job score. Um, we have not taken any outside funding. I, I bootstrapped the business uh, along with a, with a co-founder um, and launched it and have basically built a small profitable software company um, that basically uh, we sell to people uh, for the most part who do what I used to do. So uh, my background is I'm a liberal arts college grad who started using computers because my dad owned an original IBM PC in the 80s. So like I've been using about computers about as long as you can have been using them. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then I basically got my sort of 10,000 hours working as a recruiter, both third party and in-house. Um, and then I started a recruiting software company uh, and uh, we build software for people like us. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's my background. So I've just spent a lot of time in technology and a lot of time in recruiting. By the way, I'm just curious, like why bootstrap job score? Why not take any outside funding? I mean, Spokio didn't take any outside funding, but I'm just curious uh, why why choose that route? <clears throat> do you do you want a do you want a politically correct answer or a not politically correct answer? <laughs> um, what about both? <laughs> well, a politically correct answer is um, because we couldn't easily raise any, um, and uh, and and what we could get the terms didn't look very good, um, and uh, because we were able to. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's sort of, you know, having having gotten um, some advice from people who are much more senior than me um, and having been around recruiting for venture backed startups um, and actually having spent their money. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I what I did was a lot of the recruiting work I did was for venture backed startups to help build their teams, to find them executives. I placed pretty much every job except a CEO um, at, you know, small startup companies and so I understood what it meant to raise venture money. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? And, and venture back then uh, had a very specific formula in terms of you needed to spend this amount of money to build a business of this size. Do you know what I'm saying? To exit in this amount of time and you raised it in these tranches and, and it was very little deviation from that formula. Uh, and um, our business didn't obviously fit that and we were able to bootstrap it. Um, and you know, uh, sort of the, it was, it wasn't one decision for lack of a better way to put it. You, you actually make 
decisions consistently over time. And uh, it was kind of what was right for us at different points of the business is the, the you know, uh, I think it's uh, to say it simply uh, when, when we wanted it or it made sense, it wasn't easy. Um, and then uh, when we didn't want it, uh, it was sort of coming in and it didn't look very good. And, but yeah, you, you would probably have to, uh, I'd probably have to have a lot of drinks to, to answer each one of those in which year, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So uh, in the past, uh, 20 odd years of exp- no, experience, like what has, how has the kind of recruiting industry changed like over time? That's like asking how the computer industry changed or do you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I started recruiting, <clears throat> I mean, we had email, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? In, in 1995, I mean, but we built the first, some of the first web-based recruiting productivity software which is a recruiting, which is a software category that's older than CRM systems, I believe. Like, you know, I'm in a really old software category. And, you know, I think that in many ways, the recruiting business has not changed at all. Um, And in some ways, the recruiting business has changed completely. And the the main change, if you just want it in a 30 year chunk of time, um, is the velocity and ease of which you can get information. So, um, you know, the the amount of public information it, uh, about candidates, about companies, about best practices in recruiting, uh, books published about recruiting, uh, entire, I mean, you know, entire magazines about recruiting. I mean, you know, so there's, there's a lot of information available about recruiting um, that you can consume to learn your craft. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing is, um, but um, some of the things that, that you needed to be really good at to be a standout uh, recruiter are still true, but they're not as taught or used as often. So I think that um, if you talk to old school recruiters, I think I qualify as one of those. I've got the gray hair, but um, sort of the, the recruit, some of the older skills um, are not taught or used as often, uh, despite the fact that they might be really important, um, I guess, is the is the, the main thing. And uh, but those are really valuable. Um, so what are those things that that doesn't change? Like what are the things that holds true? What are those three things that holds true? Mm-hmm. About recruiting in, in general or recruiting? Yeah, or recruiter, yeah, being a recruiter and recruiting. Well, I mean, you know, I, I have a, something I really need to publish, which, you know, is a, something I wrote up for my, my, my customers, uh, which is uh, how to hire a recruiter. So one of the things that, that I used to have to do was I would I'd be sent into companies, right, and they needed to add talent. Right, um, and no matter how I was paid, I always tried to leave them better off, right, than when I got there. And one of the things that happens is when you reach a certain scale, right, when you're hiring at a certain volume, um, you you need to bring recruiters into the company. <laughs> so that makes sense. Like, there's just too much work, you know. So typically, it's if you're trying to hire five people at the same time, there's sufficient logistical work uh, that needs to be done um, to run recruiting, and so. Um, the logistical tasks um, at the end of the day have not changed substantially. Uh, how you do them <laughs> and, and what tools you use, um, you know, have changed. But but at the end of the day, you know, you need to you need to figure out what you're looking for, and you know, you need to come up with a good set of assessment criteria, and you need to come up with a sourcing plan, and then you need to you ideally want to get it, you know, as many good candidates as you can, and then you yeah. need to run them through the assessments, and then you need to select them, and then you need to you know, you need to make a competitive offer, not just an offer. Uh, and then you need to close the deal and you need to, you know, have a very effective handoff um, to the team to make sure that the deal sticks, you know, um, mm-hmm. and no, all of those things have been true since the day I got in. Do you know what I'm saying? In, in white collar mm-hmm. recruitment, um, the, the means by which you do them um, and the tools you use to do them and the efficiency with which you do them and the volume with which you do them, uh, has definitely changed right um in 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 that amount of time but at the end of the day you know it's sort of like uh they're they're really good parallels to sales you know so Mm -hmm. a really great recruiter for instance um is good at building trust with candidates like you need to get a candidate to open up to you and tell you what they really want (laughs) you know what i'm saying you you know there's a game like you know there's sort of a certain amount of two-way negotiation in recruiting uh you know Mm -hmm. and and building trust with the hiring manager and understanding the real requirements, not necessarily just what they're saying or what's on paper, and then talking to a candidate and understanding their real requirements and building enough trust and communication to sort of 
facilitate, do you know what I'm saying? A match, mm-hmm. uh, to deal with, with the hiccups that happen, uh, and not lose your mind, uh, cause things go sideways in recruiting all the time, <laughs> you know? So there's, yeah. there are just some fundamental things that, that are just true, you know, uh, no matter what era, if you like that you're in, in recruiting that, you know, makes a good recruiter stand out. Um, cool. So, so how about from the candidate's perspective? How how's the how has the job market changed in the past like twenty to thirty years? <laughs> candidate from the candidate's perspective. From the candidate's perspective, mm-hmm. I don't think it's about you, you. I don't think it's about the job market, which changes all the time. And I mean, that's I, I, I'm not. I can't speak. Talk to an economist. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like that's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I think that what what's changed in terms of. Um, Employment in general um, would vary based on, you know, geography, position type, industry. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not all the same. But, you know, people with leading edge skills um, have a lot of power. Hmm. You know, I mean, so it it is supply and demand. Do you know what I'm saying? And that was true when I got in the market in the 90s, you know, um, and uh, often candidates, uh, the market was uh, more inefficient if if you well so for instance like you couldn't really easily get salary data <laughs> do you know what i'm saying and like it was pretty hard do you know what i'm saying to get that information 30 years ago uh, it was hard um to use the internet to figure out how many other people had your skills um it was hard i mean like we started one of the first job boards there were no job boards like it was hard to figure out how many positions of a particular type were open because they were on print newspapers across the country so like a lot of what's happened is the market has just gotten a lot more efficient um, and so it's easier for candidates to, to zero in on opportunity. Um, it's easier for candidates to understand their worth. Um, and I think that has contributed to the average, why the average tenure, um, do you know what I'm saying, of, of employees and white collar has gone down, you know, to the point where we're getting to an almost a gig economy where people are effectively self-employed. They don't really have a job. Do you know what I'm saying? They just kind of move from gig oh, to gig. Uh, if, you, if your skills and demand and ability to market yourself um, is sort of good enough. So I think that, you know, if you're, if you're motivated and you want to understand your market, it's easier to get that information um, and invest in yourself, you know, um, I think would be, uh, I'm not that, not that everybody does, but, you know, sort of, if you, if you want to get that, you kind of have, you have more power and control um, yeah. maybe than you used to. So do you have any thoughts or positions on the um, most current like pay transparency acts across different states? <laughs> Whether it's Denver well, or, you know, California. Well, well, yeah, I mean, we, we have to cover this in our software. Like, it's, do you know what I'm saying? Like, because it's the law. Like, we, we deal with this from a compliance standpoint. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's very interesting, you know, uh, in terms of how it will shake out. It, it is still pretty early days. I mean, these, 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 these first laws went into effect in states in the last couple of years. Um, they're not nationwide. Uh, they vary, actually, by state and city. They're, they're not the same. This is, this is a very emergent trend. Um, and I think it's really interesting. I mean, from an employer, that sort of radical transparency, and you actually periodically see articles about this, like, you know, I mean, like you'll see it in your feed. If you follow this kind of stuff, it's like, so-and-so saw her job posted with a salary range with for $40,000 more than they were making, you know, and they literally print it up and take it into their, you know, their, their boss's office and, you know, sort of. <laughs> so like, you know, I mean, and I think that um, employers, uh, to some extent, uh, have had the, the luxury uh, and ability to to operate uh, without transparency. Um, and I think that that if trans- transparency becomes anywhere near the norm um, and there and and regulations are actually force them to be real and tighter ranges. So like there's some people like I remember some some Wall Street firm there was something like put in like yeah it's anywhere between fifty and three hundred and fifty thousand dollars do you know what I'm saying and it was just like they dinged them they're like no you can't do you know that's not a range do you know what I'm saying so as the ranges get tighter and there's more uh, more information out there uh, again further transparency more power to to talent you know I think is is the net net uh, you, you know do you think uh, most companies right? actually uh, you know uh, transparently report those ranges or they put a discount factor or like you said, you know, make the range really wide that's almost meaningless. Like uh, what's your thoughts on this? Like what, what are you hearing well, so kind of, been, uh, on the street? Yeah. 
uh, nobody talks about this. And because you, I mean, it could open, I mean, like it would be very difficult to get anyone to talk on the record about this, even to me. Do you know what I'm saying? So my experience as an old school recruiter is there have been salary ranges in organizations and salary bounds in particular large organizations for since I got into the business. Like, so, and this actually just has to do with basic business principles. Like we need to forecast our costs. See you know what I'm saying? And like, you know, if we're going to open this amount of headcount, how much do we think it's going to cost? And this sort of ballparking is just basic good business principles. Does that make sense? And, you know, you also don't want huge amounts of transparency because word does get out. People get drunk and they go out to the bar and people end up finding out what other people make. Like if you think that, do you know what I'm saying? Like in my experience, people do end up finding out and it does cause problems if there are huge discrepancies and that's not new. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, so uh, it's also been true that in some organizations there's more of a performance culture and in some organizations there's more of an equity culture. If you have a performance culture, this is sort of more okay. Uh, if you have more of an equity, you know, a, an equity driven culture, uh, this is a lot less okay. So this transparency about the culture of the organization is going to become, people are going to know from the outside, often you don't really know, you know, and now people are going to know, <laughs> you know, so, so that's interesting. Again, more power to the, to the candidate. Um, but uh, I think that um, at the end of the day, what's, what's important is this is just data for you to start a conversation with a company. A lot of people think that um, this is, this is going to have massive impacts. Uh, and to some extent, it's actually just a baseline of, are we going to be in the right ballpark? It's sort of, again, it makes the market slightly more efficient, um, you know, slightly more transparent. But I've found that even in organizations that are pretty tight, uh, you know, in their bands, um, for the right talent, they'll flex the bands. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so bands have always, almost always been guidelines and recruiters understand this. Um, and a lot of what a recruiter's job is, is to understand what terms it will take to get it done. And, you know, without this public salary data, organizations were sometimes able to close people for a lot less, if you will, because there was no data and the candidates didn't know what to ask for. Do you know what I'm saying? And so yeah. I think that I think that the market has already shifted. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think that was already happening. Um, and this is probably yeah. just an accelerant. Um, yeah. I think what's really fascinating uh, though, in terms of a larger trend is just remote. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, when you can hire someone anywhere that has had the biggest impact in the economy because pay scales used to be very geography dependent. Um, and in a lot of white collar roles, um, they're not, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, I mean, it just, you know, you, you can't work that way. Um, and so, uh, and that's just meant that a lot of people who are who are historically in geographies where people were not as well paid, they're now if they have leading edge skills, they're able to get better paid provided they're comfortable with remote work. Yeah. And that's been a that's, that's been a massive change in the market. Um, yeah, I think in the past few years, uh, uh, the the job seekers seems to have more power over companies. And I think most recently we all heard about the big tech layoff, right? I mean, just a couple of days ago, Facebook just announced that they will lay off another 10,000 people. So yes. do you think the market that meant dynamic will change and uh, the companies will hold a little bit more power uh, going forward? Or how does these tech, uh, big tech layoff like change the market? There's more people looking for a job. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a market. Do you know what I'm saying? To say anything other than it's a market and that the market will go up and the market will go down, <laughs> you know, is, is really just not that much more to say. I mean, so yes, there are more candidates who meet certain qualifications that Facebook hired that Facebook didn't need to hire probably in the first place um, based on projections of where they thought things were going, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, based on how, what, what they thought, how they thought the market was going to be competitive when they made those decisions, <laughs> right? And those things didn't come true, um, you know, and they made a correction and that's what healthy businesses do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my, in my limited experience, um, you know, those, some of those people may have very leading edge skills and may get a lot better jobs. Uh, some of those people may find that their skills don't translate you know, to the market and they might not get a better job, but again, it's a market. It's about you and your skills and what organizations need and what opportunities are available. Um, and, you know, uh, a lot of people uh, may want the same job that they had at Facebook and that job might not be available to them at the same pay rate. Um, and so, yep, 
It's sort of like, I want the perfect house. Do you know what I'm saying? At this price in this neighborhood. And there's just no houses available. So, you know, uh, I think that it, it is one of those things where, um, yeah. you know, if, if you need a job, you're going to need to find the job that fits you in that market and holding out might not be the way to go. You know, mm -hmm. like you, you need to be realistic. Um, and, and there's good data about what's available. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you, you can know if, <laughs> you know, it, you can look in New York city, do you know what I'm saying? And see how many jobs there are with this title and how much they pay. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you can, you can see that, uh, you know, um, and, and unless the organizations are fibbing, uh, which, you know, there are sometimes sourcing recs out there, but I mean, the norm is most companies only post when they're, when they're looking to hire people. So for those uh, who are unfortunately uh, affected or the, the new grads, like who are looking for jobs, what are the kind of common tips or advice that you have for them to uh, better secure their next, uh, next step, next stage in their career? Well, mid, mid career or, or just starting out their career, because the, the answer is pretty different. Hmm. Let's start with uh, new grads, like starting a new career, like how can they better prepare uh, to, to start to find right. The first job out of school. Yeah. Well, you, you, you're better off cheating, you know, I mean, just to be candid, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, the first job is a weird question, right? So, I mean, are you talking about someone who, somehow is 21 years old is graduating with a four-year degree and has no work experience i mean you know mm -hmm. that's that's a very specific scenario uh you know but you know there are a lot of people who graduate from college with a four-year degree who have a lot of experience do you know what i'm saying some of those people have been working since they're 15, you know, they're 15 years old or younger i mean so i mean i think that the, you know the answer is it's it's a lot easier to get a job if you've had a job um, and it's a lot easier to get a job uh, when you're recommended by someone who's familiar with your work. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so, so, you know, the, the crux of the employment market is you want someone who's at an organization that you want to work at, who is considered a top performing employee to not only know you, you drank beer with them in college. No, they want to be familiar with what it's like to work with you and the quality of your work product. Okay. So in other words, it's not just, I know them. It's, I know them. I know them well. I've worked with them and I vouch for them. Recommending for someone and vouching for them is very different. Um, and I think what you're looking for in all situations in a job search where you need a job is to uh, be able to generate a short list of people who can vouch for you. Um, and to try to work through those people um, by asking their advice you can't show up with your handout. Do you know what I'm saying? You don't want to do that. You really want to go and say, hey, I'm in this situation. I'm looking for something new. We work together. You know, would you would be willing to be a reference? And what would your reference be like? That's a good starting point. Oh my God, you're one of the best people I've ever worked with. That's the answer that you want. Any answer other than that, that's not them vouching for you. If your list of people who will vouch for you is nobody in power or nobody, you, you got some work to do. And I can talk to you about what you got to do there. But, but the easiest thing to do is to go to people who are familiar with your work product who will vouch for you. Um, and, and then if necessary, people who are familiar with your work product who, who won't vouch for you or people who are vouched for you who are not familiar with your work product, those are okay. Um, and the cold start is really the worst situation that you can, that you can have. Um, do you know what I'm saying? And then you really want an introduction, you know, again, from those second tier people know your work product again, you know, or, or know you. And that's what I mean by cheat. It's sort of, you know, some people look at it as nepotism or see what I'm saying. Like, I, and I'm not, and, but it's not, it, it's just, Hey man, this is the way I was able to start a dialogue with a company. Right. Um, who's, you know, who might be willing to take a risk on me. And, you know, I think that, um, a really good way to look at your career, if you don't have that. And if you look at a lot of people who move mid career, and get big raises or great jobs, you know, they're going to work with people who know them and know their work. Does that make sense? Like it's, it's, it's smooth. Um, and sort of the further it, it is distant from that, the less smooth or difficult it is and the more talking and, and the harder it is. And in the event that you need to do that uh, mid-career or early career, I mostly focus on trying to, to, to focus on the organization and the team. So what you really want is some organizations um, are really good at developing talent. They, their talent model, if you will, is to hire people who are not experts and don't have people who vouch for them and to develop 
skills in those people. Does that make sense? Like that's how they operate. And, you know, and some of them are really good at identifying and bringing great people in and kicking off their careers. And in the beginning of your career, that is more important than anything else. So the way that, that I've encouraged people to think about it is if you go in and you work really hard, who is going to know that you did really good work and is going to vouch for you? Cause that's going to define the opportunities that are available for you two years from now four years from now, six years from now, eight years from now. And a lot of people are concerned about what they're going to do in the job, but actually who you get to work with and what, you know, and what they end up doing um, is often more important. And it's really just important to get into the river. Like you kind of want to get into the river of working with the best people in a given business because great people often end up sort of working together. Does that make sense? And pulling mm -hmm. other great people with them. And you want to be in that pull um, you know, and it's sort of finding your way into that and how you, how you work your way into that. Um, everyone has different stories, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying, of how to do it. Um, but a lot of so, it yeah, is, so, yeah. so how, how do you kind of get people to vouch for you? Is it asking them for recommendations on LinkedIn profiles or put them in a cover letter? Like how, how do you, how do you actually get people to vouch for you when you're applying for a job? Well, the way that the the way that the process works for a referral at, at organizations who are who are good at recruiting is actually completely different um, for for referrals. It's and um, so normally they don't you don't walk through the front door. If you do, you walk through the front door and you say, "I was referred by this person," and what happens is they go talk to that person. <laughs> that makes sense before they talk to you, right? I mean, so mm -hmm. you just say so. Um, and often in some organizations, you're walked over, like you send them their information and they take it to the recruiter or hiring manager. And then you have a conversation about you. And then you, and that person facilitates an intro. Like, do you know what I'm saying? You almost, you almost circumvent the recruiting process entirely. Like you, you know, people in mid career, they'll be like, Oh, so-and-so got hired. Do you know what I'm saying? But like, there wasn't an interview process. It's like, well, they, they work with this person for the last six years, like, and they were the hiring manager. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, that's what you want. Like you, you, what you should do is try to instrument your career so that that happens. <laughs> right. So it's really what I'm getting at. And so you know, the challenge is how do you, you know, how do you get there is, you know, you need to, you need to pick the people and then you need to do whatever's necessary where you're able to do enough work product where they can confidently say they did a great job. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so, you know, sometimes that's interning work. Sometimes that's volunteering. Sometimes that's taking a job that you don't want to do and doing a great job. So that so-and-so is saying you did a great job, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and then the other thing that's really important um, is having people conclude uh, that you are someone that they want to bet on. So the, there's a lot of advice to like go do informational interviewing. So informational interviewing is you want to get some information, but what you're really trying to do is convince that person that you're awesome. So that when they see there's a job opportunity that they throw it your way. Right. So it's really your ability to pitch yourself, talk about the things that you did. Um, and, and explain, you know, how you were a change agent, you know, you founded a club or, you know, you were able to go to China and get by in a backpack without speaking Chinese on $250 for a month. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, so a lot of it is having, having memorable stories that make you seem like a standout, standout person that's going to be able to do interesting things. Um, you know, and especially in the startup ecosystem, that's what matters. The, the challenges never stop, you know, and, and if you want to work for a tech startup, uh, you need to be someone who, who who knows how to take on a challenge and, you know, and, and, and go at it hard. Um, and if you haven't done that in life, um, people don't expect you to learn that on the job. So, you know, a lot of it is is really um, if you if you like, it's packaging your stories um, uh, about your own life into things that will apply to the work world, which when you're earlier in your career, you don't necessarily understand. But if you but if you're able to if you have you, there are probably people, you know, who are older um, you want to talk to someone who hires people and you really just want to sit down and say, how do you assess people? How do you evaluate people? Tell me about the things that are common among the best people that you've hired. What makes people great? And then once you understand what those things are, you need to go into the, your own repository of experiences. Does that make sense? And yeah. see if you have them. And that could be from, I don't know, going on a trip. I mean, it could be anything, but you need to be able to tell that kind of story. And I think that What's important is for you to instrument your career around selecting opportunities where you where you put that in the bank. Mm -hmm. You know, so the way that I like to talk about it is, you know, what you really want is short bullet points about results. 
So at the end of the day, great resumes aren't necessarily riddled with buzzwords and long paragraphs or anything like that. It's like in this job where I was there for two years, there's like four results, right? Joined sales team of four, hired six people, quadrupled sales and improved close rate by 94%. Got it. Yes. Reminds me of a OKR, Objective and Key Results Framework, right? Basically. Yeah. yeah. And, and what you're really looking to do kind of is put some of those on your resume. And you can be not just you, but I was part of the team. I I was part of accomplishing this. And what it does is it drives the interview towards talking about how did you participate in doing that? What did you do? What did other people do? What did you learn? So your conversation is about, I have some understanding of how to do this kind of thing. And generally, if you already understand how to do that, they don't have to teach it to you. And that's great. Do you know what I'm saying? So, you know, and I think that that's really all a lot of people are looking for, right? Hey, man, I operated the fryer at McDonald's for two years. I can probably operate the fryer at your restaurant. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and I can tell you how I don't have hand burns because I've got this cream and I wore these gloves. And do you know what I'm saying? Like, you're just, you're going to have a story if you've done it. And so, unfortunately, in the beginning of your career, a lot of it is about what you've done. And if you haven't done it, you just need to highlight what you have done and that you're going to be, dude, you're no matter what they ask you to do, you're going to do it and do it with a smile. Right. Um, so, so, so since we're on the topic of uh, resumes, like how can one decide what kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, keywords or skills to, to put on there? Right. Because, uh, uh, you know, if I'm very proficient in SQL, then put it on resume, that's fine. But what if I'm just like middle of the road, on the on Python, for example, should I put it on there? Should I not put it on there? What are the importance of these uh, terminologies and skills on your resume? It really depends on how the recruiter is looking for people, right? So, you know, I mean, I think that there's technology that does keyword analysis, which we include in our software. You know, some people in doing a first pass at a resume, right? So if there's a tremendous bias in the organization, and let's just be honest, this is about bias. Like, the hiring manager is biased. People don't like that word, but it is. I am biased. I want a software engineer who it knows this keyword. And often, often that's not true if you just want the crux of it. They just don't want to take the time and energy to explain that what they really want is a software engineer who's good at problem solving particular sorts of problems in particular ways, and they're good at object-oriented programming, and they have familiarity with certain types of libraries and coding styles and it would be wonderful if they'd worked in Python because actually they'd climb the curve faster than the next guy. And that's part of the decision-making criteria. Like, so a lot of it is, it's more complex than buzzword bingo. <laughs> like, so in other words, people are like, oh, it's all about buzzword bingo. And it's like, well, buzzword bingo is really just filtering. So at the end of the day, you know, in the event that you're applying either some, some automated technology or a human being might have been trained, you know, uh, there's a hierarchy of needs and they're ranked this way. And sometimes what you're trying to do is just kind of get past that filter to talk to the person. And sometimes keyword stuffing will accomplish that. <laughs> so the other thing about keyword stuffing is, you know, it's also about search engines, right? So there are massive LinkedIn, indeed, there are massive repositories of employment data and recruiters go to these systems, you know what I'm saying, to identify candidates and do outreach. Um, and if you do some keyword stuffing, um, do you know what I'm saying? That will, yeah. that may help. Um, but there's also, you know, uh, that's all it will really do. Um, and probably what's more important um, is, you know, the, the way that I think about resumes is you don't want to, you don't want to write something also um, that, uh, how do I put it? Um, that puts people off. Like you don't want to, you don't want to write for the algorithms. Like what you're really writing for is, is either the hiring manager or the human who's going to need to make an assessment on whether to call you. And what you're really doing is giving them the bullet points of the stories that you want to tell. So you'll be forced to tell some stories in an interview, right? Like they're, they have questions that they're, they're going to have to ask and there's not, and you just do your best, but then the resume and, and the bullet points underneath each job are really about the stories that you want to tell. And what you're doing is you're prompting them, to ask you those stories. That's about what those, you were talking about the OKRs. So like a resume, so if you want them to ask you about your knowledge of Python libraries, talk about that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, but it would be better to say, 
you know, had to, you know, was tasked with identifying, you know, which framework we were going to use, evaluated this, this, and this, and chose this, right? Like that's kind of a better bullet point than just stuffing something in there. So the general advice is if there's something that you want to come up with, someone's looking for something, find a way to get it in there, but don't do it in an obvious keyword stuffing way. It'd be, you know, it'd be better to explain how and why that's in there. Do you know what I'm saying? In the context of a project or a story. And, and you have to be selective. You can't just put everything in there. Just throwing everything in there is not a path to victory, right? I mean, like you recruiters are not, they're not, I mean, experienced recruiters are not that dumb. I mean, you've looked at thousands or tens of thousands of resumes. They know when they're looking at a good one, you know. Um, so what does recruiters exactly look for? Like, for example, like when you're trying to hire someone or fill a particular role, like what kind of qualities do you look for whether it's on resume and also in the interview well recruiters are recruiters are curators of company culture if you want the crux of it like so you know one of the things i talked about i, I talked about how i'd go to startups and I'd, I'd sort of have to try to help them get better at recruiting right was was part of what i did before i started job score and a lot of it was just having people think about recruiting so here think if, if you think about it for a minute let's say a company has one recruiter okay and the company uh, hires 150 people over a two-year period and only have the one recruiter. Who's the only person that those 150 people talk to that you're absolutely sure that they spoke with them? The recruiter, basically. Correct. And who influences who gets to the next stage of the process for all of those 150 hires? So the recruiters, yeah. Who helps manage the decisions of which one you're going to pick? Who pushes? Who negotiates? Like, and so, you know, the recruiter's belief system is important. <laughs> so in other words, like, it's it's not easy to get a recruiter to completely change their belief system to represent your company. Does that make sense? Like, so sometimes hires are a reflection of, of that person. Like, you can't stop being you. Does that make sense? Everyone has a certain amount of you in you. And then the other thing is they're a reflection of what their hiring managers say they want. So like at the end of the day, recruiters don't make hiring decisions. I mean, it's extremely unusual to have an organization where they where the recruiter has the final say. I, I like to say that they have uh, accountability, influence, and no authority. <laughs> so like, so in other words, like recruiters are these these middle people, right? And I think that um, a lot of what a lot of what they need to do is uh, you know um, understand the values of what's important in the role, understand the values of what's important on the team understand the values of what's important in the boss employee relationship and understand the values of the organization and do their best uh, to understand the candidate and how well they match each thing. Does that make sense? So I, I think maybe a good, a good thing for, for candidates to understand is it is very unusual for a good recruiter to, to ask a question uh, without having an underlying motivation or thing that they're looking for. Does that make sense? Like, so people, so skills is, has become, and skills testing is not a lot of what recruiters do anymore. It's there. They might run an assessment. Does that make sense? That people who are not a recruiter are probably going to do core skills assessment. Like, are you actually good at this? Like most recruiters can't tell. They, does that make sense? They're not experts. Like that's, that's yeah. unusual. Um, they exist, but it's not, that's not the, in the core recruiting skill set. Um, and so a lot of it is they're looking for some of these softer skills. They're looking for team fit. They're looking for communication style. Do you know what I'm saying? And a lot of it is just trying to be aware. And, and this is a lot of where knowing someone who works for an organization can be incredibly helpful. So if you can have one conversation, <laughs> just like one conversation with anyone who works for the organization and ask questions about company culture, about team dynamics, about values, about what they promote, does that make sense? And getting this information it's easier to pattern match for the candidate to understand what the recruiter is fishing for. And for you to, I mean, if you just want to check the boxes and get past them, which unfortunately is the way a lot of people treat recruiters, because again, they don't make the decision, but unfortunately a lot of people don't give them their respect. Like they, they, they may have a lot of influence, but I think that the, the key thing is to, is to really try to have some sense of what they're looking for. Um, and that's often in the job description when there's requirements, do you know what I'm saying? And nice to have. And, you know, you should probably expect some questions about some of those things and you can prepare your answers. Mm -hmm. And then if you, the more you can learn about their culture and how they operate and that will not, and I don't think you should try to cheat the system because if you give fakey fake answers and you get there, you're not going to have a good experience in the job. But 
what it can do is de-stress you. So one of the things I say that to, to job seekers a lot is interviewing is incredibly stressful. Um, and it's something that people don't do very often, but recruiters do all the time. By the way, recruiters are not stressed in interviews. <laughs> so like, you know what I'm saying? Like you have done so many interviews, like they they might be bored. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they just do it so often, you know, and, mm. and I think that you are stressed in interviews. And one of the best things that you can do is, is understand what's coming. So you're less stressed. So the more you understand what's going to happen, um, you know, the easier it is. And actually that's a lot of really good recruiters actually do that. They talk about the hiring manager. They talk about how it's going to go. They talk about what they're going to ask. And a lot of that is just to de-stress the candidate because the most stressful interaction you might have with your future coworkers and your entire tenure is the interview. So mm-hmm. a lot of what you're looking to do is, is really just figure out how to not be stressed out, which is easy to say, but hard to do. Um, mm-hmm. But having some sense of what they might be looking for, having some sort of canned, or I don't like canned, but know what stories you want to tell so that you can kind of pick up speed in the interview is a lot of, and make a better impression is a lot of how you. So, so what are the kind of like some of the favorite questions recruiters like to ask? I mean, this can help de-stress some of our audiences. I mean, in my opinion, um, so this is what's, this is what's screwy. I mean, I, not a lot of people agree with me on this, right? I mean, so just so you know, like this is, I'm, I'm saying something heretical here. Uh, I don't think you should surprise candidates with questions and in interviews. Like, I think it's totally fine to just tell them what you're going to ask. Like, you know, and, and I like to use this example, right? So when I was going in, I was saying, hey, man, how often do people show up to meetings and A, not know what it's about, B, not know the people, C, not know how it's going to be measured? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, the, the more you can can make it a predictable and understandable interaction, the more likely you're going to see what that person's really like. Now they're on their best behavior. You might work a little harder to prepare for that interview than you might for the typical meeting. Do you know what I'm saying? But like, you're probably getting the best version of what they're going to be like. And all that, that confusing or tricking people tries to do is show what happens when you try to confuse and trick them. And that's not what most people do on the job. So to go back to your question, um, I mean, I have some thoughts on what good, you know, recruiting questions are, you know, um, and, but, you know, and there, there are people who have written entire books about this. There's, there's, there's studies, there's quantitative, you know what I'm saying? Like this, you know, assessment is a big deal. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and but, you know, I think that um, a lot of, um, a lot of what you're looking for um, is really just trying to understand if this person cares um, and their story um, is indicative of the fact uh, that if they care about something that they do a good job um, and maybe that they go above and beyond. Right. And by the way, not a lot of people are like this. Like you might think you might find out you're not like this. Do you know what I'm saying? But a lot of what what recruiters are looking for is because uh, that's what every hiring manager wants. Right. Like they want someone who's responsible. They want someone who's going to do what they say. They want someone who's not going to be confrontational and make a, a mess and, you know, or, or get drugged out and on heroin. Or do you know what I'm saying? Like they're just they're looking for a responsible adult who does a good job, you know, and, you know, depending on the role. Uh, has already done certain things or is comfortable handling certain challenges, uh, you know, and, and that's, I mean, it's not much more than that, you know, and then sometimes they're just looking for a personality fit. Like, like I'll give you a first question. Uh, I'll give you an example. Like someone might ask, are you a sports fan? Do you know what I'm saying? And let's say that you say no, which is truthful. Well, if everyone on that team is a massive sports fan, do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. but that's, you know, there, but you can't prep for that. And like, so a lot of what I say is just be truthful, try to have some stories lined up that you might tell, um, because it is a two way street. You want to get into a situation working with good people with interesting challenges. And, you know, you can't get bummed out if it's not a fit, you know, the recruiters are just doing their job to try to put together the best team they can. Right. And a lot of people, you know, get, get their heckles up, uh, you know, and, just because you want it doesn't mean it's the, the right thing for both of you. And often they're just short circuiting something that probably wasn't going to work in the end because they know what's coming next. Like good recruiters understand what step two, step three, step four, step five are. And they're really just optimizing for, all right, here's a lot of what, what candidates don't understand is recruiters are really just saving hiring managers and, and the people's time. Those people are supposed to be doing something else, right? They got work to do. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and meeting people and getting to know them takes a lot of time. So they're really just sort of doing a first level screen. Do you know what I'm saying? For, hey man, we know these things are are are, are going to be a big problem, you know. And 
by the way, if only one thing's a problem and you're awesome at everything else, you'll probably make it through. Do you know what I'm saying? But if there are seven things that are really important and five aren't a match, yeah. there's not a lot you can do, you know? So, I, I mean, you, you need to find something that's a better match. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that a lot of people are trying to trick it, you know? And so the best questions at the end of the day for a recruiter to go back to your thing are the ones that accurately, that, that accurately predict candidates that, that the, are, are going to make it through the next stage and, you know, uh, are, uh, don't eliminate, you know, everyone. <laughs> so, uh, you know, because there are a lot of questions that, that literally will just eliminate almost the entire talent pool. So, you know, the really good questions um, don't eliminate most of the talent pool, but help surface people who are more likely to be hired. Um, and that should vary per role and per company. Like there is no perfect interview question. So yeah. I think that, you know, the great interview questions are what what's the need like recruiters are a service person. What's the need of the, the, of the company and the hiring manager and how do I best craft questions to get the data that I need to, to get to the, to the best possible hiring decision that we can. Yeah. I want to second that because uh, my favorite questions are the one that can segment that, like that does a very good job in segmenting the audience uh, or in this case candidates. Like if you can segment them so that we can make more informed decisions, that's my favorite questions. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, so there, so by the way, I'm not an expert in this and don't even purport to be and haven't even done most of the reading. Like this is a whole branch of recruiting, but like it, there are some nomenclature, like they're what are called knockout questions. So sometimes there are questions that are literally like, it's almost like a multiple choice question. Like if you answer, like I'll give you an example. Can you lift 50 pounds? Like there's some jobs where if you can't lift 50 pounds, we can't hire you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just that that's, I like that example. It's like, you know what I'm saying? No, like you're going to have to lift. 50 pound bags in this job. If you can't lift 50 pounds, you're out. Like, and you should definitely not get upset about that kind of question. But a lot of the best questions, um, in my experience are relatively open-ended. They're not knockout questions and how they choose to answer the question, um, is what's interesting. And great recruiters are actually are good at asking the next question. So a lot of, a lot of recruiting is how deep can you go? Does that make sense? This is one of the things that people teach in recruiting is like, you get better at asking the next question, the next question, and the next question. And is the person comfortable with that? And it is very difficult to fake or study your way into the ability to have that kind of conversation and, and sort of be under that kind of scrutiny. Like that's easy if you're knowledgeable on a topic and incredibly difficult if you're not. And so to go back to your point, you talked about segmenting them. It's like, yeah, this is this person's tier one, this person's tier two, this person's tier three that often is a multi-question sequence. Does that make sense? It's not just mm -hmm. one question. It's the ability to, to go two or three questions deep, which often comes with experience. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, so Dan, like, uh, I, I know you have a super successful career, right? Uh, in recruiting, uh, entrepreneurship and all that stuff. Do you have like, uh, kind of the, some tips like, uh, in regards to, uh, retrospecting on your career, what are the some of the things that made you successful? I mean, I wouldn't call myself super successful. Part of that is because I work in Silicon Valley, right? So you know, there's there's a success bar, which is <laughs> guy who guy who owns a small software company is is not considered a success. But I think that at the end of the day, um, believe it or not, you're it normally starts with your parents and your upbringing. Um, you know, this is, this is not a pleasant thing to say and is not a standard interview path, but, um, you know, what are things that you learned from an early age, um, in terms of how you work with other people, how you work with on things that are hard, uh, how you handle when you fail, <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying, what's your, what's your willingness to try new things? You know, how, how curious are you about other people who are different from you and learning how to communicate and connect with them. Um, you know, why, uh, do you want to be successful and you know, what do you think success is and why do you want to be successful? These questions are much more important than, you, you know, um, and often these things don't change about someone when they start their career. These are things that you, you bring with you in terms of who you are by the time you, I mean, yeah, by the time you're 21, the answers to these questions are, are pretty well defined already, you know, um, and you might learn more context and you might learn more. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you'll learn more skills and accomplish more in different things, but, you know, you're, you're kind of unlikely to change who you are. Um, 
And the only other thing that I can say in terms of that, that seems to be pretty consistent um, in a lot of uh, people who are pretty successful is um, they're, they're good critical thinkers, um, they're good active listeners, and they're exceptional writers. So, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of success um, is, is often taking a uh, relatively, you know, complex or non-obvious situation, <laughs> um, kind of being able to look at it and break it down into either a smaller set of problems or do you know what I'm saying? A, a set of op alternatives um, being having the, the gusto to kind of guess and go, like you got to not have analysis paralysis and, and part of making it go is just being able to communicate it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, and, and man, it is way more efficient to communicate in writing, um, <laughs> you know, and, and getting your thoughts organized um, than trying to have individual conversations. So um, I don't know if that's helpful, but those sorts of things, you know, um, the better you can be at those things, almost no matter what you do, um, if you want to become a leader, do you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. That's a, those are really important. Um, uh, but you can be incredibly successful without being a leader. Um, and then it's really just about what's important in your chosen discipline. So, you know, as a doctor, it might be organic chemistry or it might be bedside manner, you know, as a coder, you know, it might be your ability to do math quickly or do puzzles. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll just give you an example. When I was a recruiter working with engineers, uh, the only the only thing that I found that that was uh, consistent that someone was going to be a really good coder was that they composed music. Wow, um, that's surprising. Well, no, it's incredibly uncommon. Um, and composing music is about creating extreme elegance in a mathematical system. And creating elegance in a mathematical system, solving math problems is not about doing it elegantly. It's about doing it right. And doing it right is table stakes. But excellent is is another bar. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so, Hey man, if you can compose music that people like to listen to and they dance to or, or whatever, or it relaxes them, that's a serious talent. Right. And if you can, if you learn the blocking and tackling of, of, you know, of coding and you have that skill, you're probably going to improve the program that you're working on. Right. Cause you're going to want it to be elegant and excellent and scalable. And you're just kind of wired that way. So I don't know if that, I'm not sure I answered your question, but I try. No, no, you, you do. But uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you, Dan, uh, yeah. for actually sharing your thoughts and wisdoms uh, with us. And uh, if someone wants to kind of reach out to you, how, how do they reach out? <laughs> I wish I was super accessible. I'm really not. I mean, really, the best way to reach me is to get introduced. I'll be candid. I have a very large number of LinkedIn connections. Um, I've only connected to people on LinkedIn who either I've met or done business with. Um, so they know me. Uh, so you should look me up on LinkedIn. Um, you should see if you know someone in common uh, and, and ask them to introduce you uh, and why you want to talk to me. Um, if you're interested in using our software product, you go to our website and you sign up. Um, but I'll be candid. I don't answer those calls at this point. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you, you'll, you'll generally talk to a couple more people before you talk to me. Um, but, the uh, yeah, that's really the best way. I'm not Mr. Twitter or Facebook or, or anything like that. Um, oh, good. At least we know <laughs> so, you didn't start the bank run on the last week <laughs> via Twitter. <laughs> You're not one of those guys. <laughs> uh, I, I definitely wasn't one of those. Um, uh, one of my last recruiting clients was actually um, the company that built and spun off Twitter. So I think I, I have a ridiculously low Twitter uh, user number, but I don't think I've even tweeted on it. <laughs> <other times. laughs>